Well, this morning we're going to be in the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at the story of Cain and Abel. So I'll give you some time to turn your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. God's word says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him Sevenfold, And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Well, I want to start with a story that I heard a few years ago. So it's, it's a true story of a young husband. Uh, his family was, were, it was a Christian family. He was a Christian. And he was probably in a rocky part of his marriage his marriage was struggling a little bit. Nothing, nothing totally out of, out of place, though, for young marriages with a bunch of kids and, and busyness in life. Uh, he was in school as well, working a job to support his family. And you could just say that his marriage was in a vulnerable state. And then one time at work, there was this woman that he was working with. She started to get a little close, a little too close, a little uncomfortable, and was flirting with him. And you could say that sin was crouching at the door a little bit. Then one day his wife took the kids and went to visit her parents who lived a few hours away from their home. And so he was home alone for a few days. And so he went out and got the mail. And he walked inside the house and he was going through the mail and there was a letter from this woman at work addressed to him. He opened the letter and he started to read the letter. And the letter was describing this adulterous relationship that she wanted to have with him. Then all of a sudden, while he's finishing up reading this letter, there's a knock at the door. And she's there. She's literally at the door. And so she had devised this plan that she was going to send a letter in the mail. And when he opened it, when he's all alone, she's going to be there waiting for him. 
And so he's really, at this moment, at the crossroads. Sin is literally crouching at the door, knocking at the door, and he has to make a decision. Am I going to open the door and ruin my life and ruin my marriage and ruin my kids and ruin everything for this moment of adulterous, fleshly gratification, or am I going to resist and keep the door closed and run to God for rescue? He ran to God for rescue. He ran into his bedroom. He shut the door of his bedroom so he couldn't hear the knocking at the front door, and he got on the phone, and he called some brothers in the Lord that could help him. And he was spared. And so what I want us to consider this morning, really, is I want to consider a sin that so often knocks at the door of our life, so often is crouching at the door, and its desire is contrary to us. It wants to ruin our lives, but we must rule over it. And it's the sin of covetousness and envy. And I think that our story of Cain and Abel, though the word is not used, you don't see the word covet or envy in the passage. It's all about covetousness. It's all about envy. That's what this really is about. So I want us to do a bit of a study of this sin this morning and consider it and consider how to kill it. Now I'll give a brief definition of covetousness. It is desiring what is not yours, but your neighbor's. We could even say it's desiring something uh, that you do not have, but you are also not willing to put the work in to get it. So it might not be something bad that you want, but you are unwilling to, to put the work in to, to get this thing that you want so badly. You're unwilling to get it justly. You want it in an unjust way. You just want it. That's covetousness. And then envy is when you sprinkle a little bit of anger and bitterness on top. Now this thing that this person has that you want, well, I hate them for having it. And I'm angry at them for some reason. And I'm jealous of them. And I'm bitter and resentful towards them. So you don't have envy without coveting. And coveting, when it goes unconfessed and unchecked, almost always will produce envy. These are very, very dangerous, dangerous sins. And as I think are almost always crouching at the doors of our hearts and our lives. And the sin of coveting tends to spiral out of control and it, and it creates and breeds anger. It breeds lying. It breeds theft and stealing. I think James puts this very well in his fourth chapter, verses one through four. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? He's writing to Christians, keep in mind. Is it not this, that your passions are, out, are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So all the fighting and all the strife between men, it basically boils down to this issue of covetousness. 
You want what other people have. And you can't obtain it, so you covet. And that produces anger, and it produces even murder, as we'll see in our text. So our passage in Genesis 4 really is the first instance where we see this type of spiral going. This is the first instance where we see covetousness lead all the way to the act of murder. But we even see it with King David, and we see it in other places too in Scripture. David coveted Bathsheba, and eventually it led to murder. So it's New Year's Eve, so let's make a resolution then in light of the new year approaching. And let's be resolved to put to death the sins of covetousness and envy and instead fix our eyes on the things of heaven where Christ is and be grateful for all the gifts that God has given us. And covetousness really does forget that everything you have is a gift from God. And everything that your neighbor has is also a gift from God. Nobody has anything apart from God's grace. Now, I want to do just a quick biblical study of this sin before we really get into the passage because I, th- I think there's some things that you might miss about it. And the first passage I want to look at is Ephesians 5, 3 through 5. We read the larger portion of this in our scripture reading, but I want to hone in on verses 3 through 5 and just notice something. Starting in verse 3, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Colossians 3.5 says just about the same thing. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Did you notice something? Notice what Paul did there. He equated the sin of idolatry with the sin of covetousness. They're the same sin. When you're an idolater, you also covet. When you covet, you're also guilty of the sin of idolatry. They're one and the same. They're two sides of the same coin. Idolatry is false worship. Idolatry is worshiping the creation and the creature rather than the creator. And so when you covet, you are worshiping creation and not God. Now, I think this gets really, really interesting. If we think about the Ten Commandments, let's think about the Ten Commandments. The first one is a commandment against idolatry. Exodus 20, verse 3, You shall have no other gods before me. Don't worship any other thing besides God himself. There's only one true God, and him alone you shall worship. And then the very last commandment, commandment number 10, Exodus 20, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So what this means then is that the Ten Commandments are bracketed and bookended by the same exact sin. Again, Paul says that covetousness is idolatry, The first commandment is a commandment against idolatry. The last one is a commandment against coveting. So, everything in between then, it implies that everything in between stems from and is produced from these root sins. Idolatry and coveting. You know, Jesus summarized the Ten Commandments in love God, love neighbor. 
When you don't love God, you commit idolatry. When you don't love your neighbor, you covet his stuff. They're one and the same. The horizontal sin of coveting expresses itself in the vertical sin of idolatry. So let's just quickly summarize this quick kind of introductory study of this sin before we get to Cain and Abel. First, again, is coveting is idolatry. Two, idolatry and coveting are the roots of all other sins. Sometimes maybe you've wondered, what is the root sin that produces all other sin? Well, it's these sins. It's coveting and idolatry. Number three, like all sin, coveting is birthed in the desires and then moves to action. It's birthed in the heart, in your affections, and then it will eventually produce some type of action, like theft or murder. Four, coveting implies and necessitates the reality of private property. Maybe you haven't thought about that before. The Tenth Commandment assumes that we own things, that we actually possess things that belong to each one of us, that I actually have things that in the eyes of God belong to me in this earth. So it necessitates the ownership of private property. Five, coveting implies and necessitates disparity in life. Have you ever thought about that? If we all had exactly the same things, if we all looked the same and had the same personalities and the same relationships, well, there would be no coveting. And that's the, uh, that's the lie of communism and Marxism and socialism. They want to try to kill the sin of coveting, in a sense, by creating this false utopia by coveting. So what does the government do? What do the leaders in these countries do? They covet the property of their citizens. They steal it then and say, well, we're gonna, we have the ability to distribute these resources perfectly and have everybody be equal so that there's no more coveting. But you can't fix coveting with coveting. It doesn't work. And so what does a communistic government end up doing? It ends up murdering its citizens, as has always been true, especially if you look at the 20th century. Look at the Soviet Union. Look at China. Look at North Korea. A communistic government ends up seeing the fruit of covetousness, which is murder. So finally, the last thing that I want to say in summary about this sin is coveting can move beyond material things and involve status and position, sexuality, identity, experiences, praise, affirmation, recognition, and spiritual blessings. I want to say something just briefly about the identity issue. The LGBTQ reality is at the root a coveting problem. A man is made a man by God, and then what does he do? He covets womanhood. He covets femininity. He covets femaleness. He wants to be that which he is not allowed to be, was not made to be. His desires and his passions are disordered. And that evil covetousness, coveting desire might actually produce this fruit of marring his body. So even the issue of identity is, comes down to covetousness. So then let's finally get back to Genesis 4 in this story of Cain and Abel. And we're going to split up our passage into four headings. We're going to look at the setting, we're going to look at the sin, and we're going to look at the sentence. And so the setting. 
What's the setting of the story? Well, look at verses 1 through 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. So, what do we learn? Well, first we learn that Abel, or Cain, I mean, is the first human being actually born into this world. Adam was created directly by God from the dust of the earth, and then Eve was created directly by God from Adam's rib. So, Cain is the first person actually born as we are, as every single one of us in here were. Then Abel is the first sibling. He's the second one born into this world. And we see that the older one, Cain, the firstborn, he takes over the vocation of his father. Adam was a worker of the soil, a worker of the ground. Adam, Adam in the Hebrew, was made from the Adamah, the ground, and then God calls him back to work it. And so Cain takes over his dad's vocation. He is also a worker of the soil. And the younger brother then has to find, in a sense, a different vocation. So he becomes a keeper of sheep. And it says that in the course of time, they brought offerings to the Lord. So what's another aspect to this setting that we find ourselves in? Well, it's a post-fall setting. So if you are asking the question, did the curse of the fall in Genesis 3 was it carried over to the children of Adam and Eve? And the answer is yes. And we all know, you know, thousands and thousands of years later, we're sitting here, and we all know very well and experientially that yes, the curse of the fall has made it to us as well. We're sinful too. And so the setting is a post-fall setting, and the setting more particularly is a setting of worship, which kind of brings it to home. Because right now we're in a setting of worship as well. But because this is before Christ, all worship is done through the offering of sacrifices to God. And so these two brothers, they bring sacrifices to the Lord. Sacrifices according to their vocations. Cain, because he's a worker of the soil, who brings fruit to the Lord. And Abel, because he's a keeper of sheep, brings the firstborn of his flock. Well, that brings us then to the sin. And so since the setting is worship, that helps us see where idolatry might be taking place in this story. So let's look at the second half of verse 4 to verse 9. It says, And the Lord had regard... For Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? So if you want to know how to destroy your life, here is the recipe. So let's start with the idolatry. Obviously, it's not overt. You might be wondering, where is the idolatry in this passage? I don't see it. Is not Cain 
worshiping the true and one God. He's worshiping the Lord. He's bringing an offering to the Lord. He's not taking a tree and carving an idol and offering sacrifices to this false idol. No, he's offering sacrifices to the true God. So where is the idolatry? It's, you know, it's kind of interesting. But that is the subtlety of idolatry. It can be very, very subtle. And it takes place first, obviously, in our hearts. Idolatry takes place in our hearts. God demands from us that we be in total submission to Him. And when our hearts are in total submission to Him, it will produce itself in proper outward actions, proper sacrifices. So if we look at these two sacrifices, we get a little bit of a hint of what's going on here. One, we know that Cain's heart was not right because the Lord did not accept his offering. And he later says, you know, if you, if you do what's right, will you not be accepted? So he's implying that he did not do something right. He did something wrong in his offering. So what was wrong about it? Well, yes, his heart was wrong. But let's look at the, the offerings. It, it just merely says that Cain offered the fruit of the ground. That's all it says. And so if we didn't get any more details about Abel's offering, we might think that, oh, this is a perfectly acceptable offering. But we get added details with Abel's. He offered the firstborn and the fat portions. And the fat portions were considered the, the, the choicest parts of the animal. And you meat eaters in here probably know that. We like the fat on the ribeye. Yeah. <laughs> so, Abel gave God his very best. God demands our very best. God demands what's first. And Cain, or Abel gave it. Cain withheld it. He withheld his first fruits. He withheld the best for himself. And as soon as that takes place, I'm going to keep the best from me, and I'm going to give God my second best. That is idolatry. That is idolatry. Cain, in his heart, thinks that he is more worthy, more worthy of the first fruits than God himself. God is sustain his, sustaining his very existence. God is allowing him to even get anything from the soil. God is keeping him alive in this very moment. And Cain has the audacity to withhold the first fruits from God and keep them for himself. So search your own heart. Why are you here? You know, Cain is approaching God in worship. You're here, I'm assuming, because you want to worship the Lord. But what's really going on in your heart? Why are you actually here? Are you here to, to actually offer your best to God, your very life to Him in worship? Or, or are you holding something back? Are you here for different reasons? To create an image for yourself. Maybe you want to be seen by other people as a moral person or you might even be, want to be seen as a Christian. I know that's changing in this culture and it kind of already has changed, but we still live in kind of conservative North Dakota, so having the label of Christian on you might be a good thing where you're at. So maybe you just want to have an image and so you're here just to play a part, but all the while your heart is dead. And you're here to get the praise of man instead of praising God. Maybe you're here to flaunt your body. Maybe you're here to, uh, 
to put on display your new clothes that you just got for Christmas. You want people to see these new clothes and see you in these new clothes. And so when you picked out your outfit this morning, you thought, oh man, I just got this, this new shirt and these new pants. And I, man, I really want people to notice me when I go to church. So that's why I chose this outfit. Why are you here? Why are you here? Cain obviously wanted to create an image for himself as though he knew Yahweh. But his heart was dead and he was idolatrous. Now obviously we learn that God rejects his offering and he becomes angry. And who is he angry at? He doesn't really say he's angry at God. He's actually angry at his brother. He's angry at his brother and that's how we know that this is covetousness and envy. Abel got what he deserved because he gave the firstfruits, the firstborn. He got, he got God's praise and Abel or Cain hated him for it. Now this really is the sin of our day. We have so many people in our country right now who they don't offer the proper sacrifices and that's a metaphor, an analogy. They don't put the work in. They live sexually immoral lives. They abandon their kids. They can't hold a job. They can't show up on time. They do drugs. They steal things. And then they look at people who have a, a, a somewhat successful life, a family that's intact, who've earned some wealth and have a home and have a car, and they envy that person. They envy that person. This really is the sin that propels the social justice movement. This really is the sin that propels the Black Lives Matter movement. This is the sin that uh, uh, propels the LGBTQ plus movement. And you hear all this rhetoric around anti-capitalism and anti-wealth and billionaires are unjust and evil. Nobody deserves all that money. And they envy people with wealth and people who have put in the work and made the proper sacrifices. It's the sin of our day because of social media even. There's always been this desire to envy and covet in the heart of man all the way from the very beginning. Obviously, we're reading about Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. But today, we have social media that just feeds our covetousness and envy. And the algorithm of Instagram and Facebook, it knows what we want and knows what our heart desires because even if you hover over an image for just a split second more than the last one, it starts feeding you those types of images. And you, you covet. You're like, oh, I think on my Instagram feed, I'm, I'm getting a lot of like big whitetail bucks. You know, it's hunting season. And so I'm like, ah, I want that giant buck. So the algorithm even knows what your heart desires and it feeds you all this. And it could, if you're not careful, it could, it could feed this covetous, envious spirit in you. I want what they have, and you're getting just inundated with it every second. You could be in your bed at 2 a.m. under the covers just envying and coveting as you're scrolling. So this really is the sin of our day. 
You know, a lot of people envy Elon Musk because he's the richest man in the world right now. And I've heard lots of interviews where people will ask him, the interviewer, interviewer will ask Elon, well, you know, there's a lot of people that want to be you. What would you say to these people? And he kind of says, they don't want to be me. They don't want to work 100 plus hours a week with little sleep, constant stress from making important decisions. They just want the fruit of his ideas, the fruit of his talents, his decisions, his skills, his, his sacrifices. And many of these sacrifices are immoral for him. His family is in shambles. I can't imagine that you could be the richest man in the world and not have your family in shambles. So do you really want that? Do you really envy him? Here's a couple quotes from Elon Musk. He says, you don't necessarily want to be me. It's very hard to turn it off. He's talking about his mind. It's like a never-ending explosion all the time. People look like they have a much better life than they really do, and that is social media. It's curated. People put the very best on there, and then you envy what's probably not even true of their own life. So deceptive. He says in a different interview, my mind is a storm. I don't think most people would want to be me. They may think they would want to be me, but they don't, they don't know, they don't understand. They don't understand, really, if you are to boil it down, the sacrifices needed to get that life. And so that's kind of a, an important principle of coveting. People who covet and envy want the fruit of the sacrifice, but they don't want to make the sacrifice necessary to get the fruit. Cain wanted the praise of God, but he didn't want to offer the sacrifice needed to receive it. Now, we see envy and covetousness in the church a lot. And we need to confess it more often. And we need to be aware of it. Think of something so innocent as a church potluck where we all bring our dishes but then guess what? Taste buds don't lie. <laughs> and so you bring your meatballs in the crock pot, and then, you know, Sally brings hers, and guess what? At the end of the night, all yours are left and hers are gone. And there can be this temptation in you, and I, I guarantee you, some of you have felt this. I felt it because I like to cook. And there's like, oh man, I, I want my crock pot to be empty. I want people to praise me for my cooking skills. And you might try to cover it up and so you go over to Sally and you ask her for the recipe. And so you're very thankful for her good cooking but all the while you're, you're harboring envy in your soul and you, you, you start to feel that inkling of anger towards her. And bitterness and resentment. You know, you can come in here and you can look at certain marriages and certain families and oh their kids are so in line their kids are so disciplined you know a husband can look at a certain wife of a brother in the Lord and go oh man I wish my wife dressed like that or I wish my wife you know parented our kids like, like that I wish my wife was more hospitable I wish my wife was more outgoing blah 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 and it goes on and goes on I wish I had more kids like that family and we covet and we envy in the church. 
We'll be at a, a small group and somebody will pray out loud and oh wow, they prayed so eloquently. Oh wow, they, they recited so many Bible verses in that prayer. Oh, I wish I could pray like that. And you start to envy them. And you almost are mad at them in, the, in your heart. Why am I mad at my brother in the Lord who can pray well? But sometimes you feel that. You look over at your brother or sister's Bible and it's highlighted a lot and you start to envy how much their Bible is marked up. Man, this sin is deceptive and cruel and wicked. And this is going on in our hearts. Well, I want to say that not all desire is automatically coveting. You know, Paul tells the Corinthians, imitate my life, for I imitate Christ. And so if you see somebody or hear somebody pray really, really well, and their prayers are saturated with Scripture, and their kids are disciplined and in order, and their, their marriage is, is, is so filled with joy, and you look at them, you have the ability to not covet and envy, but to imitate. To go, I want to be like that. I want to be more a better follower of Christ like so-and-so is. And like the Corinthians are called to imitate Paul because he imitates Christ, you can do the same thing in the church. Indeed, you are called to do the same thing. So don't covet and envy. Follow. Be humble. Let's grow together into one body. So, this warning though. One of the most vivid warnings in all of Scripture, I think. So Cain is angry, hates his brother, is idolatrous. God says to him, sin is crouching at the door. It desire, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And we need this reminder today. We need to know that sin is there, wanting to devour us. Paul says something very similarly in Romans chapter 7, verses 21 through 25. He says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So when you want to do good, evil lies close at hand. When you want to do good, sin is there crouching at the door and its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Moses, as he's writing this, he compares it to a vicious animal, like a cougar, like a, a lion. It's there, ready to pounce. It's not like this other thing, though. It's in you. It is you. It's your fleshly nature. And that's what's so weird. This enemy of yours is in you. It's your old nature, your old self. It still wants to live according to the flesh. But you must master it. Don't be like Cain. Don't open the door. Be like the man in the opening story who kept the door closed and went and sought out brothers in the Lord to help him. So, consider the mercy of God here, though. God warned Cain. I think that we can maybe forget this, that the sentence that we're going to look at here in just a moment... God didn't immediately deliver this sentence to him after this, this idolatrous offering. He gave him a warning. Hey, guess what, Cain? Sin is crouching at the door. Do better next time. 
and you will be accepted. He's giving him an opportunity to repent, to change. There's just so much mercy and grace here. Do right next time. Next time, offer your first fruits the next growing season. Cain doesn't do that. Indeed, he never really wanted the praise of God. He wanted his sin, and that's what he grabbed. So he went and he murdered his brother. Now, I want us to think about, I want to give us some practical help here and kind of ask the question, well, how do we rule over our sin? It's crouching there. It wants us. Its desire is contrary to us. How do we actually rule over it? How do we win this battle? You know, the Puritans would say, how do we mortify the flesh? John Owen said, you know, be killing sin or it will be killing you. So how do we do this? I think it's important to first recognize that sin begins in the heart. It begins as an affection of the heart, a desire of the heart. Just simply think, like, if, if you hate chocolate, if you hate it, there really is no temptation there. You're, you're not going to be tempted to eat it if you hate it. And so we have to understand that sin is the same way. You put to death sin by changing your desires. You need to change your affections. And that comes by the Spirit, with the Spirit. He is our source of holy desire and holy affection. He gives us the ability to set our hearts on pure things, our minds on pure things, on the things of heaven. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the world. So the Spirit gives you those new affections, that new desire, that new will. And then you begin to discipline yourselves as you participate in the means of grace, as you, as you begin to read your Bible, as you, as you pray, as you gather with the saints to worship God corporately, as you fast. The Spirit sanctifies you. He grows those holy affections and those holy desires for the things of heaven. But it's work, it's discipline. In a sense, it's sacrifice. And then there's the reality of faith. And this is so important. The Spirit gives us the gift of faith. Think about the religious leaders, the Pharisees, in the time of Jesus. They, they had the Old Testament basically memorized. They knew all the laws. They fasted. They prayed. They did everything supposedly right. But their hearts were dead. They had no faith. And so you can do all the necessary spiritual discipline... You can show up to church every Sunday. You can read your Bible, you know, cover to cover in a year. You can pray. But if you have no faith, it's nothing. It's nothing. Listen to this. This is from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. This is a definition of faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. Look at verse 4. By faith, Abel, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Isn't that interesting? 
Abel's offering was done in faith. What did he believe? Think about this. He believed by faith that giving the firstborn of his flock the best that he possibly has on this earth, he believes by faith that if he gives it to God, he will get a reward far greater than he could have if he kept that firstborn. He does that by faith because that's not intuitive. That's not intuitive to the people of the world. They don't think that way. Faith lays hold of the promises of heaven and believes them. The promises of Scripture and believes them. Faith believes that the rewards in heaven that I can't see, that you can't see, that you can't touch, that they exist. And that you, if you are obedient, you're going to receive them one day. Faith does that. If you don't have faith then you won't have that confidence that you will be rewarded for good conduct and good behavior and obedience to the Lord. You will grab the things of the world. You will keep the first fruits for yourself, as Cain did. Because you're confident of them. There they, there they are. I have them. I see them. I, I, I touch them. Why would I give this up? That's foolish. The people of the world, the, the gurus, the finance of the world would say, that's foolish. Don't give that up. That's your best. Why would you do that? Faith says, no, I'll give it up because it's God's and I am trusting that there's this thing, there's this reward that's unseen right now to me, but it exists and I will receive it one day. That is faith. So we believe by faith the promises of Scripture. By faith we look to the things of heaven and not to the things of the earth. We walk by faith and not by sight. We set our minds on the things above, not on the things of the world. So, that's walking by faith. That's how you fight your sin. Because every sin, it promises satisfaction and gratification now. You can have this right now. Take it. And there's a study. There's this famous psychological study. It's called the marshmallow study. And you can actually do it with your kids today if you want to. Maybe you've heard of it. You, can, you put a marshmallow on the table and you tell your child, you can have this marshmallow right now, but if you wait 10 minutes, you can have two marshmallows. And you're trying to see, does my kid have the ability to delay gratification? Or are they going to just be the one that's impulsive and just, you know, I see the marshmallow, my mouth is watering, there it is, I can have it, I'm going to grab it, and I'm going to take it now. Faith, in a sense, is waiting for the two marshmallows that are to come. You can't see them yet. Your parent hasn't revealed the second marshmallow and said, here it is, it's in my hand. No, it's hidden. You can't see it, but you trust by faith that it, it, it exists. And if you wait, you'll receive it. That's what faith does. It delays gratification. In all, the, in all reality, it's not like you're getting just one more marshmallow. You're, you're, you're getting an unfading crown of glory that you can never even imagine. A million marshmallows wouldn't compare to this thing that you're going to get if you're obedient, if you master your sin. So, Cain disregarded this. He wanted, he wanted sin now. He wanted the things of the world now. He wanted the first fruits now. So let's just consider the flow of sin with Cain. Idolatry right away, not giving God the first fruits. 
coveting the approval that Abel received, then anger, which produced envy, and then murder. He brings his brother out to a field and he murders him. And then God asks him, hey, where is your brother? This brings us back to Genesis 3. Adam and Eve have fallen and God is walking in the garden and, and he says, where are you? And they hide themselves. It's so irrational. How could you hide from an omnipresent God? Cain, in his wickedness, in his irrational sin, thinks that I can deceive God. God is asking me, where is your brother? And he lies. I don't know. And then in this condescending tone, it just drips from the page. Am I my brother's keeper? He says that to God. Oh, sin just distorts and it ruins us. And that brings us then to the sentence. We'll finish up with the sentence. Look at verse 10. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So, two main aspects to this sentence, to this punishment. First, the ground is cursed. And that brings us back again to Genesis 3. For Adam, one of his punishments and curses is that the ground will be cursed. And he would now have to labor in thorns and thistles and by the, the sweat of his brow. But notice how the earth still yields produce for him. This is beyond that. The Lord says, no, you're going to work the ground and it's not going to give you anything now. Anything. It won't produce anything from you, for you. So it's beyond Adam's punishment. And I think that this implies that this cuts off any possibility for Cain to approach God in worship with a sacrifice. The period of repentance is over. The period of repentance is over. You no longer will have the ground produced for you for you to take the first fruits again and offer a worthy sacrifice to me. I'm not even going to let the ground produce anything for you. You can't approach me in worship anymore. You didn't take the opportunity in that period of time. And I think that we could probably get from this that that period of time from God telling Cain, hey, sin is crouching at your door, to Cain murdering his brother, that period of time is like our life right now. From the moment you're born to the moment you die, you have this period of time where you can repent. You're conceived in sin. You're born a child of wrath, but you have this opportunity you have this opportunity to confess your sin, to believe in Christ, to repent and trust him by faith. And again, this is, we now live post-Christ, so we're not going to go back after we repent and offer a better sacrifice. No, we're going to look back to the true sacrifice, the one sacrifice that was offered once and for all. Christ himself, the Lamb of God, God in the flesh. You have this opportunity right now 
to master sin, to believe in Christ who offered himself for you. Don't be like Cain. Don't reject it. Then God gives him a second sentence. He will be a fugitive and a wanderer. He'll be further expelled from the presence of the Lord. He's, he's already living east of Eden. And now he's going to be expelled further east from Eden in the land of Nod. And Nod literally means the place of wandering. So he's going to be a wanderer in the place of wandering, which implies aimlessness and purposelessness. Purple, I can't say that. Meaning, meaninglessness. <laughs> Purposelessness. There we go. He has no vocation. He has no aim in life. Everything is just chaos. And he's not even in the presence of the Lord, and he can't even approach the Lord in worship anymore. His fate is sealed. His fate is sealed. It's done. And that's terrifying. And so there really is this big offer right now. If you haven't put your faith in Christ, you still have time. You can still... Confess your sin and believe in Christ for salvation. You can believe in the true sacrifice. You have time. But if you are like Cain and you reject this offer, you will be a wanderer, you will be aimless, and you will find yourself in hell one day for eternity. And you don't want to be there. As Cain says, this, this, this is too much for me. I can't bear this. You can't bear hell, but it's a just punishment. I want to end with actually reading something from Hebrews again. I think it puts this very well, this offer very well. Verse 26 of chapter 10, the author of Hebrews says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so I think that is a, a good warning. Don't trample underfoot Jesus Christ. He's offering himself to you. Believe in him by faith, and you will have the hope of everlasting life. Let's pray.